Dracula sings the greatest hits by the greatest artists. You'll be doing the Transylvania twist with Dracula. I'm a neck biter. I'm a neck biter. I love your ugular vein. It's what I'd like to drain. Here, the Prince of Darkness take on Elvis. There's a thousand pretty women waiting out there. And they all seem to love my Widow Peak's hair. And I'm just a devil with love to spare. Viva Transylvania! Viva Transylvania! <laughs> Dracula sings the greatest hits by the greatest artists from the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s. Take through my heart, and you're to blame. Darling, you give being a vampire a bad name. Dracula sings the greatest hits by the greatest artists with a special guest appearance by the Wolfman. Full moon, you make my hair start to grow. You bring the beast out in me Whenever you start to glow Full moon I want to bury a bone You got me chasing a tail I never thought I would own that's enough! This is just a promo! Back it up, pal! You are taking over my album, you hairy flea bag! Give me room to shine, baby! I should have left you in the pound where I found you! Why'd you go back to the crypt and stay there? I would bite you in your ugular vein! I hope you choke on my fur! You would be nothing without me! Kiss my tail, pal! I would be nothing without you. You heard me, you mangy mutt. Order yours now, 815-939-3388. Dracula sings the greatest hits by the greatest artists. Available on 8-Track and Reel to Reel. Hi, this is Butch Patrick, Eddie Munster, and you're listening to Mike Shimano. <laughs> the Mike Tomano Happening. Welcome to our Halloween 2021 spooktacular edition of the Mike Tomano Happening. You know, the spirit of Halloween is something I celebrate year long. The aesthetics, art, folklore, mythology, occult interest, harvest season... Pumpkins, bats, horror movies, heavy metal, goth, and gloomy music. It all captures my imagination and feeds my soul. So, obviously, the farmstead is decorated with cobwebs, skeletons, bats, jack-o'-lanterns, spiders, giant spider on our front porch. He may be alive. I've been feasting on some of my favorite Halloween movies this month, revisiting classics like uh, John Carpenter's The Thing. Wow. Old Universal movies like Frankenstein, Dracula, The Wolfman... The Invisible Man. I also, uh, I recently revisited the the late 70s miniseries Salem's Lot based on Stephen King's novel. David Soul was in it. Uh, Lance Kerwin. Bonnie Bedelia's in it. The great James Mason's in it. Yeah. Fantastic. Definitely worth revisiting. The scenes with Danny Glick scratching at the window. Open the, open the, open the window, Mark. Oh, oh man. One of the, one of the great great horror film scenes Danny Glick scratching at Mark's window trying to come in and sink his teeth into his ugular vein you kidding me great stuff and uh, who else is in that oh Jeffrey Lewis one of my all time favorite actors 
character actor extreme amazing yeah go check it out salem's lot fantastic i've been listening to uh, my favorite albums from black sabbath the cure the damned you know all very autumnal tunes you know i've also been listening to a bunch of extreme metal music which i've been heavily delving into lately it's a genre i haven't given enough uh, time to and i'm definitely uh, making up for lost time fun stuff on the literary front, let's see, I've uh, I've been rereading some of Clive Barker's Books of Blood uh, short stories. He's awesome. And I, you know, I picked up at a secondhand store Marilyn Manson's The Long Road Out of Hell, his autobiography, and I'm getting through it, but uh, I've never been a huge fan of his music. I mean, I've heard it and I've listened to some of his albums. My friend uh, Tim that I grew up with was a guitarist in his band for a while during the Mechanical Animals recording in the uh, OzFest tour, a.k.a. Zimzum, who I haven't spoken to in a while. I'd like to uh, get in touch with him. He's an interesting cat. But reading the book, Marilyn comes across as a real misanthropic uh, prick. So I, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying to find some redemption, and especially in light of recent controversy surrounding him. It uh, it's not surprising that he comes across as a uh, a lunatic in his book, and a very unlikable lunatic. So I don't know. I'm trying to find something in this book that uh, makes me want to finish it. <laughs> uh, on today's show, I'm going to be digging into the vaults with some excerpts from radio show interviews that I've done over the years that kind of blend in with the Halloween motif. So enjoy. <laughs> The legendary actress Tippi Hedren visited my morning show on January 7th, 2011 to discuss her wild cat sanctuary. And I took the opportunity to ask her about working with Alfred Hitchcock. Tippi Hedren's with us, and I, I know many people fell in love with you on the big screen. I wanted to ask you, I first fell in love in The Birds. I mean, come on, that was, what a great movie that was. And, and working with Hitchcock, uh, with, with The Birds and Marnie, was he as insane and, and, and obsessive about his female stars as uh, he has been portrayed? Uh, yes. He tried to own you, right? Tried to control your life a little bit? Yes, and you know, when you take a grown woman with a child and you try and do that to her, you know, it doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. But what about as a director? Did it kind of uh, shine over his uh, his faults because of his greatness as a director? Oh, he was absolutely wonderful. And I'm when when uh, he discovered me in that commercial, the Seagull commercial, mm-hmm. uh, in 1961. I um, I had I had done all of these different commercials, which gives you a terrific technical background. Right. Uh, but as far as becoming a character. Uh, it's another thing, you know. It's it's another form of um, this industry, and uh, so he was not only my director; he was my drama coach. Oh, okay. Which yeah. was was fabulous. I mean, what better? Yeah, yeah. Than well, he... to have a director as with the qualifications that and the genius that that he had. I yeah, mean, people he... still love his movies. I mean, they're. Um, Constantly seen. One of my greatest childhood memories was watching Chicago horror movie host Sven Gulli on WFLD TV's Screaming Yellow Theater. Now, Sven Gulli 
from 1970 to 1973 was portrayed by radio personality Jerry G. Bishop and he came across as this ghoulish hippie. He had striped pants and wore a bandana and uh, sunglasses and of course he was a ghoul and he hosted great horror and science fiction movies on Saturday nights and a young writer on that show Rich Coase would later carry the torch as son of Svenguli and eventually with Bishop's blessing drop the son of and become America's most beloved and recognized horror movie host. Rich has been a guest many times on my radio show and on October 3rd, 2007, we discussed the magic of Universal's horror movies. The Universal films actually set the pace for modern day horror films like you're talking about when they 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 opened up the door for Hammer Studios. Right. Mhm. And then, uh, and then now, you know, today it's less horror and more. They're trying to just shock, and it's sad because there's there's not a lot of uh, substance these days in new movies. Yeah, it seems to me that one of the real benefits that I always found watching these movies is that you really get into the whole atmosphere of it, even though it's black and white. And I know there are some people who who always sit there and say, "Oh, it's a black and white movie," <laughs> but uh, that works for in behalf of these movies because it creates. That, that sort of spooky, all the shadows and, and just the way that things look, it, it adds to the whole creepy feeling of it. And it's so impressive to see it. Some of the, the best cinematography, really, from the 30s is in these movies. Oh, yeah, and the scene design and the set design is just amazing. Uh, Boris Karloff, of course, uh, was the quintessential Frankenstein monster. Uh, however, uh, wasn't it, uh, it was uh, offered to Bela Lugosi, and he turned it down originally, didn't he? Yeah, Bella was, of course, you know, very famous at the time because he had been in Dracula, and the universe thought, well, you know, he's our main horror guy here. Let's offer him this part. And Bella kind of wasn't sure if he wanted to do it because, first of all, there would be no real speaking parts for him, and he prided himself on being, you know, an actor and using his voice. And when he found out the monster was just going to grunt and groan, he wasn't really <laughs> sold on it. And then when he found out he'd have to have all the, the makeup and you wouldn't really see his face as clearly, he really didn't like the idea of that. He designed his own makeup that was more minimal and even supposedly did a lost screen test in that makeup on the set of the old Dracula movie. But uh, he inevitably turned it down because he didn't want to you know, be hidden under the makeup. And then, of course, years later, he did play the Frankenstein monster in Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman. Right, right. And it was weird how they were able to take their stable of actors in Universal and make them play different characters. And he would be Igor in Son of Frankenstein, and then he would return uh, with Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman as the monster. So they were able to... Uh, mix and match from their stable of actors you don't see that as much again today as uh as, as you used to with uh studios having a group that they would utilize well that, that's true i don't think it's the same sort of you know contract situation where the old studios used to have all these people under contract specifically to them and these days i don't know that it works that way it's more you know by assignment you know whatever project they want to go to at whatever studio and that's funny because you would think if it was working on that same basis Mm -hmm. there's a chance that say in a batman movie coming from the same people they'd keep switching who batman was 
One of the most successful genre writers of all time, Dean Koontz and I discussed if he ever scared himself while writing one of his chilling novels from his appearance November 30th, 2007. The great Dean Koontz on the phone with us. Dean, uh, I wanted to ask you, you, you touched upon putting humor, suspense, and horror in your novels. Now, I've been reading your books uh, for most of my life, and you do uh, hone that craft. That's not an easy thing to do, to where you could have us be in the middle of the, the grisliest situation, uh, just grim and frightening, and we're on the edge of our seat, but you'll then throw, so, throw us a curveball and make us laugh. That's something that doesn't come easy for a writer. That's something I'm guessing you have to hone and work at. Well, it's uh, many years ago when I started doing it, uh, publishers were very resistant to it. Uh, they would say, you can't have humor in a, in a suspense novel. People won't be uh, on the edge of their seat if they're laughing. And I said, I just don't really understand why that would be the case, because uh, I write suspense novels because I think it's the key element about our lives. Suspense is central to every human life. We don't know what's going to happen to us tomorrow or an hour from now, as far as that goes. And so suspense is very essential to writing accurately about the human condition. Uh, but then the other side of that is, how do most of us deal with the problems of life? We right. deal with it by humor. So if I'm going to be writing realistically about people, uh, I think I have to mix the humor in, along with the suspense and along with everything else. And... Uh, over the years, it's gotten easier, and I have a publisher now who perfectly understands what I'm doing, and that's very gratifying. You know, we're, we're talking to Dean Koontz, and um, we're talking about uh, the human nature that you write about. The two things that are inexplicable and that are wells that we can constantly go back to, what scares us, what makes us laugh? And I think as a writer, that's got to be something you can return to time and time again. What scares us, what makes us laugh, what makes us cry, the most gratifying thing uh, that you can hear from people is say, oh, I cried at the end of that book, or I laughed till tears ran down my face, or there were chills up the back of my neck. When you're getting an emotional reaction that strong from readers, uh, then it's working, and everything else you want the book to do and achieve for them in terms of entertainment or in terms of its theme is going to be happening. And yeah. uh, so it's a wonderful thing. And you don't always know. You're your own worst critic. You're hammering away at those pages over and over again to get them smoothed out and right. And sometimes you finish the book thinking, I don't think this works at all. And then mm -hmm. you just have to wait for people to tell you whether it does. And fortunately, they keep coming back and saying it works. <laughs> Do you ever get to a point in a book where you're kind of frightened? And I'm thinking of the book Intensity, where you're, you're in the middle of writing this thing, and I don't know how much you've outlined, uh, perhaps, but you're thinking to yourself, there's no way this can end up good. This guy is so bad. This situation is so bad. How do I get out of this? You know, I, I never outline, so I never know where the book's going. And the characters take me there if the characters are fully developed and come alive. And uh, it's uh, uh, one of the problems uh, uh, with that is um, you always wonder if you're going to be able to finish it or you're going to get to the end and not have it worked out. But uh, the impact of it, it can be very strong on you. Now, being scared, scaring yourself is very difficult. I, I've only a couple of times in my entire career have I been uh, frightened by anything that I was writing. But it is easy for me to laugh out loud when I'm writing at something a character says, and I think, wow, that's funny. And as if I'm hearing it, not writing it. And uh, 
or it's it's possible at times to make yourself cry uh, when you're uh, right. writing because something moves you. But for some reason, making yourself frightened is very much more difficult. Although I will say, one of the very few times I've ever gotten creeped out about something I wrote was when I was writing Intensity. Yeah, because I, I I remember that book just had had me like feeling feeling it even when I would put it down and go about my life, it was staying with me. Now, in August of 1998, Twisted Sister frontman Dee Snyder appeared on my radio show to promote his new horror movie, Strangeland, and its accompanying soundtrack, which had just come out. I asked Dee about his favorite horror films. What are some of your favorite horror films? Head and Shoulders Above Them All is, uh, is The Exorcist. It just stands there alone. Now, did you see the new stuff that's out? Like what? There's a new. Oh yeah, yeah, I've heard about the it. new footage. Oh, I want to see with that, with that, that, uh, that spider walk. Dude, the, the spider walk. That is like that. That is the, the just the, like the, the the ultimate, the icon. You know. Yeah, I could watch that movie over and over. But uh, how about the Evil Dead? Film? Evil Dead, great, sure. You know, and and all those all those Sam Raimi jobs, they were great. And you know the Texas Chainsaws, and you know and, and the Full Moon's done some great stuff uh, with uh, you know subspecies Reanimator. I mean they they they're low budget and stuff, but there's some good energy in some of those. But uh, you know I mean I could really live without. Well you know I, I gotta enjoy enjoyed. Uh, the Chucky films, but that was a movie that literally put me over the edge to start writing my own guy. Because you sit there, you're watching a grown man running uh, from a doll, and <laughs> yeah. you go, what the hell am I watching? <laughs> Turn around and step on it, it's a damn doll. <laughs> you know, the same goes for the leprechaun. I'm the leprechaun. Kick it in the... You shoot him. Kick it. It's a yeah. leprechaun. Right, you're what right. The hell I'm the leprechaun. Yeah, sure, get out of here. Whitley Strieber is best known for his claims of alien abduction, detailed in the book Communion. And as a horror writer, his books The Wolfen and The Hunger, to me, stand out as exemplary. Both have been turned into worthwhile cult films to check out. The Hunger is a classic. David Bowie, Catherine Deneuve, and uh, Susan Sarandon turning in excellent performances in this modern vampire tale. Excellent stuff. On September 27, 2007, I talked to Whitley about the writers he digs. When Hollywood options your work, it kind of it's kind of like giving up your baby, isn't it? Well, it depends entirely on the people who option it. Uh, the uh, people who option the day after tomorrow. They called me occasionally for technical questions. Mm-hmm. The people who optioned the Grays, I was heavily involved in the creative process, and they wanted me around. I went to meetings and uh, worked with the screenwriter and stuff. 2012, they just optioned it a few months ago, and I, I don't know, honestly, whether or not uh, how it'll work. But it, it depends entirely on the creative team as to how they want to use the novelists. Some some not at all, and some have a, you know, more heavy involvement. Right. Right, and and what about writers? What are the writers that move you? What, the writers who move me? Yeah, who do you seek out? Who's who really, really out? excite me? Well, you know, I have a very weird relationship with the, the science fiction novelist Philip K. Dick. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, and I also have a fascination with ancient Rome, and we sort of have similar themes. He's And, and what's the strangest thing is that just by a coincidence... His estate and his agent, his former agent, who was his close friend, is also my agent. So, so there's, there's a real connection, yeah. There's a connection. I also like the work of, oh, writers like Robert Silverberg and Robert Heinlein and 
uh, Orson Scott Card. I, you know, I, I really enjoy good, exciting, speculative fiction. Right. And I read so much. I mean, I could, I could sit here and give you a list that would last an hour of just of writers I love. And uh, so, yeah, I like, I like, I like books and movies a lot. And you've had a very successful career, and you continue to be successful. I always, for the for the people who are out there who are writing that first novel or still working on their great American novel, uh, I always go back to Clive Barker's advice. Uh, he said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, that people love the idea of going to bookstores and signing their autograph on books and, and seeing it being published and going on talk shows, but it's the getting around to the writing that uh, once they start to do it, they realize that it's... It's extremely hard work, and, and I want well, give some advice and give some uh, give us a reality slap of uh, the world of writing. Well, the reality slap is this: most people can't and will never be able to write, and there are a whole lot of reasons for that. It is a it, it is it is the, the main one being that people don't realize that writing a book or a, uh, or a script is a craft. And you belong totally to your reader, not to your story. You're telling somebody a story, which means you're drawing your pictures in his imagination. So you serve your reader, not anything else. If, it's, if you're going in to write a big message novel or something like that, forget it. People won't read it. They read because they're drawn into the story, and it, and, and it comes to life in their imagination. The story belongs to the reader. If you remember that, you can you you can maybe you can become a writer. Right, Willie Strieber. Thank you so much. One of my all-time favorite horror films is the fantastically freaky Phantasm, which blew me away when I saw it at the age of twelve at the Orland Square Cinema the week it came out. I had the chance to visit with its creator, writer, and director Don Cassarelli on April tenth, two thousand seven and I picked his brain about where the idea for this incredibly original film came from. Rated R. It was 1979. It was myself, my buddy Jeff, and his dad, Ron. We were hanging out at Jeff's house, and his dad, Ron, said, let's go over to the movies. I hear there's this movie they're saying, if this one doesn't scare you, you're already dead. And this movie has stayed in my favorites from all these many years, released on DVD today. It's the great Phantasm. Welcome to the program, director and writer, Don Cossarelli. Don, pleasure to speak to you, sir. Hey, thanks for having me. I am a huge fan of Phantasm. I'm a huge fan of all your works. And uh, long overdue uh, DVD release through Anchor Bay. It's a great... uh, you got three movies coming out today, Phantasm, Phantasm 3, and Survival Quest. And I think uh, fans will be uh, excited with these additions. No, no, I, I think they will, will, and it's also a bit of a trip down memory lane because you know, listening to that uh, radio uh, commercial that you dug out there, you know, they just don't make them like that anymore, do they? No, they definitely don't. They definitely don't. I got the chance to see Grindhouse over the weekend, and it's really for those of us who are fans of the psychotronic, crazy films of the '70s. It's a nice walk down memory lane, indeed. Oh and, yeah, it's true. You know, the other thing I was going to mention is that you know, it's almost like uh, you know, the first movie that really scared you just sticks with you it's like a first crush you know you never forget that experience well i grew up on uh, the universal horror films i hammer films and i was a, a great uh, famous monsters of filmland kind of kid so i'm 
let's see, 12 years old at the time, I go to see this movie, and I had never seen anything so surreal and bizarre. Uh, Phantasm kind of was made in a parallel universe, written from that standpoint. What was your reference as, as, the, uh, as the creator of that? Well, you know, I, I've been influenced by a couple of movies. Of, you know, the, in the 50s, there was a great picture called Invaders from Mars. And it was a, about a kid who saw Martians land in his backyard, and nobody believed him. And I loved that element. So when I was making Phantasm, I, I centered it around a kid and that nobody believed. And uh, I used some, some, you know, in terms of the, the strange dreamlike logic, uh, you know, there were some other movies of the era which were really influential, like uh, Dario Argento's Suspiria, you know, where they don't, they don't necessarily explain everything. And I, and I think that that's possibly why Phantasm has an impact in that it's, it's a bit of a mystery and it takes a little uh, work to try to, figure out exactly what you did see. Well, I hope you enjoyed our trip into the Tomano Land Vault of Terror. Live it up, and we'll catch you next week on the Mike Tomano Happening. On June 6th, 2006, satanic panic took hold of many who are inclined to such superstition. We went right to the source on my radio show, and we'll leave you with this exclusive interview. Happy Halloween. It is the 6th of June, 2006, 666. Please welcome to the program, the Prince of Darkness, Beelzebub, Belial, Lucifer, Leviathan, Lord of the Flies, Old Nick, or do you prefer the devil, ladies and gentlemen, Satan? How you doing, babe? I know you're busy today. Very busy. Unbelievably busy. Got a lot of fear to spread, uh, a lot of anxiety, angst, panic. Panic is at an all-time high. Okay, maybe not all-time, but I mean, it's up there. It's doing pretty good. We're doing good in the panic department, indeed. 666, Satan, if anybody knows, what is the significance of it? There is none. It is uh, merely uh, the big guy. You know, he's got a strange sense of humor. Because I've been trying to figure it out myself for like... I don't know, a few thousand years at least, and I'm racking my brains, I'm pounding my head against the wall. In the meantime, i got souls to torture, I've got uh, disease, famine, you know, my, my plate's full. i got a lot of stuff going on, and, and, and I couldn't waste time on it. After about a thousand, fifteen hundred years, I said, you know what, this is just, this is a distraction. The whole 666 thing, it's, it's there to throw me off. So uh, I just ignore it, you know. They say 666 is a significant date, but uh, it has it has nothing to do with a date, right? It has... Like, I don't know, what do I look like, a biblical scholar? I made a few cameos, really. That's about it. I'm not even mentioned that often. Uh, and I haven't read... I got to be honest with you, I haven't read the book. I hear it's good. I'll, I'll, you know, it's one of those things. It's on my to-do list. I'll get to it eventually. But uh, the whole 666 thing uh, has nothing to do with uh, with a date. You know, they, and this isn't anything new. Uh, back in uh, June 6, 1966, nothing, nothing happened then. Same kind of craziness. People were worried about it. Not so much because it was pre-Omen hysteria. Uh, we call it P-O-H. It's an, an era down here, pre-Omen hysteria. And, uh, you know, I mean, let's be honest, a few people got a little warm for about 10 minutes, and uh, no one thought anything of it. What about June 6, 1906? Yeah, again, another uh, another 666 there. Now, the world did end on June 6, 1906. It did indeed end. 
but just for a little while. Actually, such a short period of time that no one even noticed. But uh, yeah, and even then, you know, in uh, 6606, uh, when the world ended for like a nanosecond, that was uh, merely a coincidence. We were experimenting with some stuff down here, a little glitch in the hardware, you know. World ended. Ooh, ooh, whoop, flip that switch back on. <laughs> you know, and then, uh, hey, isn't this ironic? It's uh, 666. That was nutty. Pure coincidence. So what about the Omen? You know, the the Omen. Uh, how you gonna how you gonna top the original? Seriously, that's what I'm saying. In Hollywood, Hollywood, Hollywood makes me look good. You know what I'm saying? Makes me look pure. Uh, Hollywood's a bunch of uh, bean counters and bottom line minded morons. Uh, it's really you know when you ask people ask what offends a Satan? Hollywood. Hollywood drivel. For curiosity's sake, though, you think you'll catch it? Maybe uh, go out and catch a matinee of the Omen remake? I, I might. You know, I get out once in a while. Once in a while. Like an hour and a half, I could probably slip out and catch the Omen movie. You know, that is if Mrs. Satan will take over operations. This 24-7 thing we got going here in hell. The, 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 the evil never sleep? Oh, there's no sleep for the wicked. I think that's the uh, the colloquialism, the, uh, the, the cliche you were searching for, but that's all right. Uh, yeah, yeah, the, the wicked never rest, and uh, we got a lot of work to do. Of course, uh, we're working on all kinds of stuff down here. So, no, uh, you know our motto in hell? Evil. It's not just a mistake, it's a way of life down here. That's what it actually says at our, uh, our uh, Bureau of Tourism in Hades. Hades Bureau of Tourism. Now, we changed it to hell because, of course, Hades sounded too much like Hades, so the, the Haitians called me, the Haitian uh, Bureau of Tourism calls it, hey, you know, people ain't coming here because they think it's hell. Although, you know, Haiti makes hell look like uh, Club Med. Anyway, I gotta go. There's nothing uh, I can say about 666. It's it's uh, three numbers. It's 18. It's uh, three nines upside down. Nothing evil. Listen, I don't put that much thought into it. I want to thank you for having me on. I Listen, I'm, I'm late for... Uh, for a morning zoo in Dallas, and then I got Bubba the Love Sponge this afternoon, so uh, my schedule's tight, but I, I look forward to being back on your show, Mike. Take care, everybody. Direct from hell, Satan, everybody. The Mike Tamano Happening.